One of the joys, listen to the people of God at Timberlake sing. Well, as I said during the prayer time, God has the ability and desire to transform lives. And, and He does that in, in different ways. He typically does that through, through individuals. He's in the transformation business, you might say. Robert Moffat, the great Scottish missionary who wrote Come Thou Fount, that we love to sing, reached Cape Town, South Africa, January 13, 1817. So we're talking about some time ago. When he arrived, he devoted eight months to the language, and then he set out to the interior to a particular tribe led by a particular man named Kraal, the Afrikaner. He was the most feared and hated man in all of, all of South Africa. Moffat was warned whenever he stopped by a Dutch farmer's house on the way out of town, don't go to, to, that, to that man or that, that tribe. He had first-hand knowledge. This Dutch farmer had first-hand knowledge of, of just what this... This, this tribe and this, this leader could, could do. He said, Afrikaner will set you up as a mark for his men to shoot at. He'll make a drum to dance from your skin. Use your skull for a drinking cup. That's how violent this man was. But contrary to the warnings, Moffat entered the tribe on January 26, 1818, almost a year after he, he arrived in, in Cape Town. and He introduced himself to the tribe's leader, this violent man, and after looking him over, he, he, for some reason, allowed him to stay. Morning and evening, Moffat held a preaching service, and during the day, he opened a school, and soon hundreds of children began to attend the school, and not long after that, the chief himself began to attend the services regularly. And As he attended the services, he, he began to apply himself with learning to read and and then he would begin to read his Bible and he would sit half the night on a rock near the missionary's hut asking questions, discovering, discussing the great themes of God's love, the Christ's atonement, the wonders of heaven. And every day there were fresh evidences of, of the chief's conversion. This man who formerly robbed the weak now ministered to the weak's needs the one who once exalted in war is now a peacemaker. He would often get between warring tribes and, and say, Of all of the wars I fought and all the cattle I took, what have I now but shame and remorse? A few years went by and Moffat took the chief on a journey back to Cape Town. And he met with the family that warned him not to, not to go to the tribe. And, and Moffat began to relay what had taken place. The Dutch farmer was marveled. He said, I must be seeing a ghost. I've, I've heard that you've already met your demise. And Moffat said, I'm not a ghost. I'm standing here before you. And, and he began to tell him about Afrikaner's conversion. And, and the Dutch farmer just replied, that would be the eighth wonder of the world. If, if what you say is true, I, I just wish once I would be able to see him before I died. He killed my uncle. And I would like to... I would like to see him and talk with him. And Moffat said, you'll, you'll have your wish sooner than you think. 
Yonder there he stands. And the farmer drew back and stared at him, and lifting up his eyes toward heaven, he reverently said, O God, what a miracle of thy power. God has transforming power. And when God transforms a man or a woman or a family, it's it's miraculous. God can transform lives, and He's been doing so since the garden. You could go through church history. You could speak of, of Billy Sunday, the drunken baseball player that was walking down the street with his friends, and there was a street preacher standing there, and they all began to mock the man as he preached, and yet the, the sermon fell upon the ears of Billy Sunday as he mocked, and he ends up coming to Christ and turning into a, a great evangelist. You could... You could go back to the Bible and list the Apostle Paul, the once blasphemer, the man who held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen outside of the gate of the city, becoming the the great apostle. The grace of God has the power to transform lives. And if I would give a theme to Genesis chapter 43 and 44, it would be transformation that comes from the the grace of, of God. We've been a long time in the story of Joseph, and God has been working, transforming this family, the family of Jacob, since the, since the beginning chapters, all the way back to verse 37. And he's had a 20-year plan. God's not always on our timetable, is He? He's had a 20-year plan. It took 20 years to, to bring us to this point of transformation, 20 years to bring Joseph to the right position, 20 years of famine to trans. 20 years in a famine to transform Jacob into the patriarch so that he might act like his name, Israel. 20 years to change the wicked hearts of the brothers. 20 years to transform Judah into the leader of his family because the Messiah would come from his line. That's a long time. And as I, as I began to run through those facts, I just I thought, I wonder how long has God been, been working on on me. How long has God been working on you? And I thought about, am I patiently rejoicing in, in God as He works to transform me? Or do I expect spiritual transformation to happen now? Salvation is instantaneous, but spiritual transformation takes a lifetime. You've seen the little t-shirts or the little posters that said, be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. God's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with anyone yet. The purposes of God often develop slowly because His grand designs are never hurried. New England preacher Philip Brooks was, was noted to be quiet and poised. And yet, he was found one day by a friend feverishly pacing the floor like a caged lion. And, and his friend said, What's the trouble, Mr. Brooks? And... Philip Brooks answered, My trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. Have you ever felt that way? I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. Some of the greatest missionaries of history devotedly spread the transforming power of God's grace and yet waited long periods of time to see that transformation. William Carey labored seven years before the first Hindu convert was brought to Christ in Burma. Adonai Judson toiled seven years before his faithful preaching was rewarded. 
Western Africa, it was 14 years before one convert was received into the church. In New Zealand, it took nine years. In Tahiti, it was 16 years before the first harvest of one soul. For Jacob, it was 20 years. And I couldn't help but think about how many are likely waiting on God to transform someone else as well, maybe a spouse. Think about the lady at at Red House, that when I left there, she had been praying at least 15 years for her husband to be converted. And when I left, she was still praying. And I remember hearing, after being in seminary and being here in Lynchburg for five or six years, getting getting the word, Gary, Gary Phillips said, come to Christ. And how exciting that was. And and I just thought of, of this... This faithful wife who I can remember during testimony time would stand and pray, would you please, I know I've asked you before, but would you pray, would you, would you pray for Gary this week? You know, pray that I'll have an opportunity to be a good wife and, and witness of the gospel to him. I just thought of her. thought of what went on in her heart whenever the wait was, was over. And maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse, a child, maybe... God to transform someone else. Don't God won't fail. Hang in there. Twenty years. And the last time we left off in chapter forty-three, you could see the transformation was underway, and you could see it was underway in Jacob. You could see it was underway in Judah, and this will lead to the transformation of the entire family. So, if you're not there, open to Genesis forty-three. And we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 15 and cover the rest of the chapter this morning. Chapter 43 and 44 go together. It's hard to separate them. But I think you can break it down in themes. You, you begin chapter 43 where, where we left off, which is God transforming Jacob. He brings Jacob to the place where he finally has no place else to look but up. The brothers come back. They've left Simeon in Egypt. They say, we can't go back to Egypt unless we take Benjamin. Jacob says, absolutely no way. They go through. They wait. They do nothing. Jacob goes into denial and then he delays. And finally he gets to the point where he is willing to, to fully depend upon God. They eat all of the food. They run out. The entire family is going to die. And Judah steps forward and says... Put him into to my hands, and Jacob finally relents, and he ends with, with if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I, I, it's in God's hands, is basically what he's saying. And you see a transformation in in, Jude, in the Jacob. Today we're going to see a transforming power that comes through Joseph as he grants grace to the guilty. And then in chapter 44, which we'll pick up next week, we'll see God's transforming power in Judah as he intercedes as a substitute for for Benjamin. God transformed Jacob through bringing him to the point he had no place to look but up, and God can also transform others through us when we show grace to the guilty like Joseph did to, to to his brothers. Let's read in verse 15. 
says, so then the men took the present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand, and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. Transition verse. New section. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks for the first time and that we were brought in and so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. And when they drew near to, to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked to him by the, at the door and said, Oh, sir, we indeed first, when we came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when he came to the encampment, we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We, we do not know who, to, who put our money in our sacks. But he, that's the steward of the house, said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought out Simeon to them. There's a powerful picture there. After the transformation that begins to take place in in Judah, we turn to Joseph's reaction whenever he sees whenever he sees Benjamin. The brothers return to Egypt. They're on their way. And the emphasis is, is on Benjamin. If, if you look back, the men took the gift. They take double the money in verse 15. They arose and they, they went down. And verse 16 says, When Joseph saw Benjamin, the... You see a picture here of grace and guilt whenever they, whenever they collide, and you're going to see which one, which one wins. And in all three of these transformations, the one with Jacob, the one with Joseph, and the one with Judah, all have Benjamin as the focal point. Jacob in sending him, Judah in seeing him, and Judah substituting for him. And when we left Joseph, he was. He was last seen wondering what will happen as he, as he tests his brothers and send them on the way. Will his brothers pass the test or not? Will, he, will they return to Egypt for Simeon? Will they see Benjamin? And verse 16 gives us the answer in Joseph's reaction. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he immediately said to the steward of the house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at, at noon. It begins with, with when. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said. I mean, Moses skips seeing the brothers and goes right to the one that Joseph needs to, to see in order to indicate that God's at work in the, in the brothers. You remember the five tests that 
Joseph gives his brothers, and they failed every one except the fact that Benjamin was was still alive. And Joseph doesn't know whether he was or whether he's not. And again, you find Joseph going about his daily task, doing what he knew to do, and he looks up, and far off, he sees the brothers coming, and he sees Benjamin. When he sees Benjamin, it tells him a number of things. It tells him that Jacob has come to trust the brothers. Because he, Jacob wouldn't allow Benjamin to come unless he trusted him. J- Joseph knows that his father was skeptical of the brothers. He knows that before he ever, was ever sold into slavery. Surely that has increased whenever Joseph goes out and doesn't come back. So when Joseph sees Benjamin, it tells him that, that Jacob has come to trust the brothers. It it also tells them that Benjamin has come to trust the brothers. I mean, Benjamin's not a little young lad. He's 30s, mid-30s. And he's not dumb. He's, he's with them. He wouldn't have come had he feared for his life. It also tells him that his murderous brothers have not killed them. I mean, think about it. This is a group of men that, that wiped out an entire village. They killed all of the men at Dothan, Shechem. At Dothan, they, they would have killed Joseph had they had not been for making money, but, but they haven't killed Benjamin. It tells him a lot of things when he, when he sees them. There's a lot of things packed into verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin, that the brothership with Benjamin is surprising, but, but I think even more surprising is how Joseph responds to them. Look at what Joseph does. It just says in verse 16, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house. I mean, this is a picture of he sees the brothers coming. The brothers aren't standing before them in the moment. He's standing here with his steward, and he looks and he sees them, and he sees Benjamin, and he immediately turns to his steward, and he instructs his servant to go kill a calf and prepare a noon meal in which the brothers will join Joseph as the invited guest. Does that sound similar to something else in the Bible? The instructions are eerily similar to the story of of grace that Jesus gives in Luke 15 with a father and a delinquent son. You know it as the prodigal. The father sees the, the prodigal returning, sees him afar off, and he gives orders for the fatted calf to be killed and, and bring it. Now think of this. Think of the picture that's going on here. Here's 11 men who have come out of famine. I mean, they've run out of food to where the family's going to starve and they, they have to come and, and get more food. And this is a group that we've seen last chapter are burdened by the guilt of a guilty conscience. And the one that they've sinned against sees them afar off as they return, and he orders a banquet for them. That's Joseph's response. That's grace. What a picture of what the Lord has done for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And when we return to Him and He sees us, He doesn't prepare a judgment court as He should. 
He prepares a banquet table of His grace. Why would Joseph do that? Better, why would God do that for you or or for me? Why does grace respond to the guilty in that way? I mean, shouldn't there be judgment that falls upon the brothers? Is Joseph or God just excusing sinfulness in that manner? And I think Jesus actually gives a clue to, to the answer of why does grace respond to the guilty in that way in the, in, the, in the beginning of the parable. So I want you to turn over to Luke 15. Because I found myself asking the question, you're going to see grace responding to the guilty, Joseph responding to the brothers, and then you're going to see how the guilty responds to grace in this passage. Why does grace respond to the guilty in that way? Why does God respond to us in the same way? And then how do we respond to the to the grace of, of God? I think a clue is, is found in Luke 15, 1. In Luke 15, 1, Jesus tells this parable... He tells three of them, actually. It says the reason that he told the parables, gives us the reason that he told the parables, I should say, in verses 1 through 3. It says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him, drew near to him to hear him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes complained or grumbled, and this is what they grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man prepares a banquet for sinners. This man fellowships with, with sinners. He receives them. Brings them into fellowship. And upon Jesus hearing that, He spoke this parable to them. This, these parables are spoken to the Pharisees that that are grumbling. And Jesus gives a clue to answering the question about whether God is excusing sinfulness or why He responds in, in, in grace. And, and before you become too hard on the Pharisees, they were part right. Uh, it's true, these people were sinners, and sin is an offense to God. Your sin is an offense to God. Calling them sinners or calling them unto an account was not the problem. That wasn't the problem. They were sinners. And sin is sin. The Pharisees got off track because they could only see the status of the sinner and they failed to see the character of God. They put the emphasis here. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And the emphasis should have been on this man. (laughs) This man who's God receives sinners. And he befriends them. The Pharisees can't see past the guilty to see the God who transforms the guilty. They grumble because they focus on only half of the equation. And that's, that's easy to do. Even sinners do that, as you're going to see in just a few minutes. We do that because grace is mind-blowing. It really is. I mean, we sing about amazing grace. 
We talk about grace all the time, but, but grace is, flies in the face of every human instinct we possess. Our, our default position is reward punishment. If you do right, you get rewarded. If you do wrong, you get punished. And so when we come in face to face with the reality that while we were still sinners, or yet sinners, Christ died for us, we, it doesn't compute. The natural inclination is, well, what do I have to do? Well, I have to, I have to at least clean myself up a little bit. I have to at least do something. When we, when we see that there's none righteous, no, not one, when there's none good, we rightly understand we deserve punishment for our sin. We, were, we are astonished when God responds with grace rather than what we know we deserve. He's able to do that because He placed the punishment on Christ. But Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that not to think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's the goodness of God that should, should lead us to, to repentance. And that's exactly what Jesus shows in the parables. Jesus in the parables goes on to tell that heaven rejoices not over a sinner that's not called a sinner, but a sinner that does what? Repents. Look, if you would, at verse 6. When he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you likewise that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner, he calls him a sinner, who repents. Look at verse 8. Here's the woman, the parable of the lost coin. It says the same thing in verse 9. When she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! I found the peace that was lost. And likewise I say there is joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who, who repents. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the sin or the lifestyle of the sinner. He's not happy that they're sinful. He's not willing to leave them in their sin or excuse it. Jesus rejoices, heaven rejoices over a sinner's repentance. Except Jesus understands there's two parts of the equation. He knows that grace transforms, but He knows the sinner must come near and here there is grace for the guilty before they will repent. He receives sinners so that He may lead them to repentance. Not so He may leave them as sinners. Joseph responds to the guilty with grace. And that leads to further transformation in their lives. The brothers were guilty. They didn't deserve a banquet. But that's what grace gives. It's not what we deserve. It gives a banquet to the guilty and treats them as if they deserve to, to be there. Turn back to chapter 43, Genesis. amazing grace that Joseph gives to the guilty. But look at how the guilty respond to the grace in verse 18. Verse 17, the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And verse 18, now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. 
Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a minister who called upon a poor woman intending to give her help. He, he knew that she was poor. With his money in hand, he knocked at the door, but she didn't answer and concluded that she was not at home. He went his way. And after a little while, he, he met her at church and, and told her that he'd remembered her need, knew that she needed money. He said, I called at your house and knocked several times, and, and I suppose you were not home, for, for there was no answer. And she said, what, what hour did you call? When did you come? And he said, about noon. And the poor woman said, oh dear, I, I heard you, sir. I am so sorry I did not answer, but I thought it was the man calling for the rent. Spurgeon went on to say before he preached, It is my desire to be heard, and therefore I want to say to you that I'm not calling for the rent. (laughs) Indeed, it is not the object of this book to ask anything of you, but to tell you that salvation is all of grace, which means free, gratis, for nothing. The invitation of God come to you who have nothing, buy and eat. How sad when grace comes calling that that we don't answer the door because we think it's the man coming for the rent. You know you have rent to pay to God, don't you? You know that your sin deserves punishment. You know that if you stand before the living God, there will be payment required. But Jesus is not coming calling for the rent. He's... Coming, providing grace. And these brothers think that Joseph is calling for the rent, and so they were afraid. What happens when the guilty meet grace? How how does the guilty typically respond to grace? What does it look like? You see it, I think, in verse 18. They respond with reluctance and apprehension rather than gratitude. Their hearts say, wait a minute, why is he inviting me into his house? I mean, can this be real? Can I truly have forgiveness of my sins? Can God truly have paid it all? Is, can it be true that He's inviting me by grace through faith to, to have salvation full and free? They say, I don't deserve this. And the guilty are wooed and persuaded by grace guilty man doesn't just run to it. A man who knows his sin hides from the light. Isn't that what John 3 says? You don't come to the light because their deeds were evil, lest they be exposed. Think about it in your life. Before you knew Christ, did you, did you run to church? Whenever you heard preaching, did you draw near and listen? I mean, I went to church on weddings and Ran out as soon as I could in funerals and sometimes didn't even go, didn't even go then. The brothers wonder, is this a trick? Are they, are they being lured into slavery? Look at verse 18. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 18. When, now when the men, now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we were brought in. And this is what they think Joseph's going to do to them. That he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. It's a trick. We're being lured into slavery. That's what they say. And people look at the grace of God and think that it must be some trick. 
What's the catch, right? I mean, really? What's the catch? And that's what they're saying. It never dawns on the brothers that Joseph had the authority to have them arrested on the spot. They don't need to come to his house to arrest them. And it never dawns on the sinner that God has the ability to bring judgment upon you at any single moment. It's the grace of God that we even live this very moment. He can bring our end at His choosing, but His long-suffering permits us to live and move. And, and even now, as He calls to eat to His table to eat, And yet we make excuses to come. If the God of the universe invites you without money, without interest fee, entrance fee, to come to His banquet of grace, what excuse could be good enough to say no? Really? A man thinks this way because that's how he would respond. You think about God, you're blown away by grace, you, you think of that in a skeptical way because that's how you think. You think about God, I think about God the same way that you would think of how you would respond in the same situation. How would you respond to someone who did you like these brothers had done Joseph? I'll tell you how I'd respond. You know, my pastor used to say, you know, lightning bolt out of heaven. Fry them right there on the spot. We think of God like, like being a man. The brothers think Joseph's game plan, look at verse 18 again, is to overpower us, seize us, and take us into slavery. Exactly what they did to Joseph. You see that? They overpower Joseph, they seize Joseph, and they take him into slavery. They're thinking, this is the plan of Joseph, because that's exactly what their plan was for Joseph. And a man's fear of coming to God is because that's the way he thinks himself. You must not think of God that way, because God is God and not like a man. You ever read the book of Hosea? Have you read the book of Hosea recently? You talk about grace. And in the book of Hosea, it talks about the adultery of Israel. And, and in Hosea 11.9, it's kind of the punchline. In Hosea 11.9, God says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Why? For I am God and not a man. I won't execute my fierce anger. I won't destroy because I am God and not a man. A man will execute fierce anger. A man will destroy, but, but I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. If you can get your heart around that, that verse alone, it'll go a long way of understanding grace. God is God. He's not a man. Don't think of your heavenly Father like your earthly Father. Don't think of the way God responds to other human beings the way you respond to other human beings because God is God. He's not a man. And here the guilty are responding to grace. They're reluctant. They're distrustful. And they're 
they're justifying. Look at verse 19. They get the invitation and they're reluctant, they're distrustful, they think Joseph's going to do the same thing that they did to him. In verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house. So, so Joseph sees him afar off, and seeing them afar off, he responds with grace. Grace for the guilty. Kill the calf, prepare a banquet, they're going to eat with me today. And when they hear about it, they were afraid. And they attribute Joseph, they think what Joseph's going to do, the same thing they did to him. And then they come to the door of the house. They're getting ready to walk in, past the point of no return in their minds. And they see the steward there, and they begin to talk to him. Oh, sir, verse 20, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But you're never going to believe what happened. When we came to the camp, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money. I mean, they're telling the story. And so here it is. We brought it back in our hand. And not only did we do that, we've brought down in verse 22 other money in our hands. Look, here it is. We do not know how, who put the money in our sacks. They offer information before they're even accused. They're pleading their case before they enter the house. It's like coming to the door and they tell the steward that they didn't do it. It's like one last plea before going in. It's There's been no accusation made against them. It's like the guy who walks up and says, whatever you think, I didn't do it. You know. They speak as a group, too. They tell of their first trip. We... We, all together, they returned to Canaan and they found the money and now they tell the second trip and then lastly they tell of their innocence. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And yet Joseph has already informed his steward of the circumstances. And I want you to look where the steward attributes the circumstances in verse 23. But he said, that's the steward, peace. Peace be with you, guilty brothers. Peace be with you, troubled conscience. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your Father. Now this is an Egyptian saying this. Your God and the God of your Father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Can you imagine what's going on in their hearts right now? You talk about mind-blowing. And whether this Egyptian knew what he was saying or not, verse 23 is the banner that flies over the whole story of Jacob. God, in His grace, is doing a work of transformation. We meet the guilty with grace ourselves because we were the guilty who received grace. We respond with grace to the guilty and become a conduit for God's grace. So transformation can come to to others. Beautiful picture. Next time we'll see how God transforms Judah.